In today's episode, we look at the similarity between our question for the day and a movie about animals. No, 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 no. Hold on. Are you sure? All right. All right. Honest mistake. Despite its title, it's not a movie about animals. Evidently, it's about a college fraternity. Anyway, moving on, we talk about quizzing God on the height of the world's tallest mountain. We wonder if God might be willing to give us the Super Bowl picks four years in the future. And we wonder what it means to be made in the image of God, all on the way to answering the question, what is double predestination? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. As we begin, I probably don't need to draw your attention to this, but I will because it's a significant change. And I just have a need to mention it. I've changed the podcast cover art, I hope you noticed. So feel free to let me know what you think. Well, welcome back to another episode of Sky Pilot and another opportunity to listen to the gospel according to Dan. In other words, just my opinion. While acknowledging that there are other opinions within the broad breadth of Christianity, I tell you what I've come to believe on my journey. When I hear the term double predestination, my first thought is not biblical. Yeah, sorry about that. But my mind always turns to a movie from my youth, Animal House. It stars John Belushi, who plays a college student who is, more importantly, a member of the Deltas, a notorious fraternity. And according to the dean, who's played by John Vernon, the worst fraternity on campus. It is a very specific scene I am reminded of when I hear double predestination. And if you know the movie, you probably know exactly the scene I'm referring to. It is when the dean is talking about the Deltas with a member of another fraternity on campus. What do you intend to do, sir? Delta's already on probation. They are? Yes, sir. Oh, Then, as of this moment, they're on double secret probation. So, is double predestination like double secret probation other than just the obvious, they both start with the word double? Well, yes and no. Really, it depends on probably who you're talking to, because there are a lot of Christians for whom double predestination is a bedrock principle of Christianity, and questioning it, debating its merits, or comparing it to any part of this movie would not really place them in a happy place, maybe even a really unhappy place. But I will share in response to somebody being uncomfortable about even this discussion, I'll share a quote from one of my favorite musicals, 1776. I'm really quoting the fool out of movies from the 70s today, aren't I? In the movie, 1776, the members of the Continental Congress are voting on whether or not they should even discuss the question of breaking away from England. And as they are going around the room, taking the vote, they come to Rhode Island's representative, Stephen Hopkins, who gives his vote by saying the following. Well, I'll tell you, in all my years, I never seen, heard, nor smelled an issue that was so dangerous it couldn't be talked about. 
Hell yes, I'm for debating anything. Rhode Island says yay. <laughs> Kind of sounds like a fraternity party right there at the end of his little speech and vote, doesn't it? So for some, this conversation might be uncomfortable, but I think the conversation is worth having. So we press on. So back to the similarity between Animal House and our question. Let me say the way they're like. In the movie, Dean Warmer announces that the Deltas are now on double secret probation. They weren't asked if they wanted to be. They are given this status that is intended to determine their future as a fraternity. Only they don't know the decision has been made. They don't know that the fix is in. Obviously, this parallel will break down pretty quickly if I push it any further, but I think it works up to this point. Double predestination also means the fix is in. Double predestination is a pretty easy concept to get your mind around. Predestination is the idea that God has chosen who gets saved. Double predestination is the idea that God, long before anyone was born, has chosen who will be saved and who will be destined to hell. And that's the double part. He's chosen both the winners and the losers, the saved and the damned, before time even began. Oh, and none of us know which is which. But whichever lane we're in is fixed by God, and there is no switching lanes, ever, at least according to this theological notion. So where did this idea come from? Well, for the vast majority of Christians, and other faiths for that matter, but this term is associated with Christian theology, so that's what we're talking about here— But for the vast majority of Christians, we can say three things are eternally true of God. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-loving. And here's the problem. I believe that all three of these are absolutely true when we describe God. But in my human limitations, I really don't have the ability to hold these three as equally powerful, hold them in tension with one another without somehow letting one slip. So I and every single other person alive who tries to describe the nature of God will invariably let one or two of these slip in order to maintain the strength of the other. So Christians down through the ages have looked at the notion that God is all-knowing, and they looked at what that meant if it were projected to its logical conclusion. If God is all-knowing, it literally means that God, well, knows everything. And not just now, but forever. God doesn't just know the height of Everest at this moment. God knows what it was in, say, 1232. And what the height will be of Everest in exactly 10,000 years from today to the micromillimeter at noon. And if this is true, then God knows exactly what flavors of ice cream, say, will be for sale in three years on July 4th at our neighborhood ice cream store. And more importantly to this discussion, God knows exactly which flavor I will choose when I walk into the store on that future date. God knows everything each of us has ever done and will ever do. If that is true, 
then it's a very small step to jump from that place to reason that, well, as God knows everything and always has, that means that before God ever created the world in which we live, it was known by God who would win the 2025 Super Bowl and, of course, who will be saved and who won't. If God knows all of this from the beginning, then it stands to reason by simple use of logic that the world God created had already baked into the recipe the individual salvation or damnation of each person who would ever live. Now, as a simple piece of logic, it's hard to refute any of this as we work our way through it. But, but it leaves out a couple of important details. First of all, let us remind ourselves that this near mathematical-like proof as to who does and who doesn't get saved is very, very strong on its use of God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing, but it's kind of lacking in its use of God is all-loving in this proof. Well, it's, it's more than lacking. It pretty much doesn't exist at all. So let's start at the beginning in the fifth chapter of Genesis, which is, of course, is the first book in the Bible and the book in which we hear about God's creation of the universe. We are told that God created humanity and more to the point for this discussion, God created all of humanity in the image of God. So the question immediately arises when we hear that, or it should arise for us, well, what is the image of God? So the first act of God in all of Scripture, is the act of creation. So I would suggest that one of the things is that God created us to be godlike in our inclination to be creative. The other thing that is fascinating about God in the creation story is God's desire to be in relationship. Again, looking to Genesis, we are told in the third chapter that, and this is a quote from Scripture, God was walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Isn't that a fascinating picture? It's a fascinating piece of scripture. God was walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Let's think about this for a moment. If all-knowing is the most essential essence of God's personality, then there was no reason for this evening stroll through creation. God already knew what would be experienced, so why take the stroll? The answer seems to be obvious, at least to me. The only reason for such a stroll is for for the experience. And experience is all about being in relationship, in relationship with the creation God has formed. The nature of God longs to be in relationship, relationship with creation and especially with humanity. That seems to me to be undeniably at the essence of who God is and is borne out by these first stories we have about God in the book of Genesis. Relationship, matter of fact, was so important to God from the very beginning that when God created us, when God created humanity, God created us in pairs. Why? So we could be in relationship. As a Christian, I believe that God took flesh to come in the form of Jesus. And that remarkable act of the 
all-powerful God is much more about love and relationship than, to me, anything else. Jesus came to tell the world how much God loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. Doesn't seem to me that Jesus came to earth to tell the world, by the way, the fix is in, there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus came to say, God so loves the world that I want you to know about it. Now let's dig a little deeper into the word relationship. Since I believe that it's really essential to the nature of God, as I sit here, our dog, Tonks is sitting next to me, and actually that's not true. Her favorite place to be when I'm at my desk is right behind my office chair. Now, I've bought and placed a dog bed right next to me here in the office, which she occasionally makes use of, but her favorite place to be is behind me, where much to my frustration, she makes it impossible for me to move my chair. It's truly frustrating, and it drives me crazy But this is the nature of relationship. I love that she's here with me. She's not exactly where I want to be. And no matter how much I try to convince her, otherwise, that's her favorite spot to be in. Now, in our kitchen, we have a toaster oven. Now, I really, I really enjoy this toaster oven because before we bought it, I burned about a third of everything I tried to toast in our regular oven. And I haven't burned a thing since we got it. I'm really pleased with the purchase. But I would never say I have a relationship with my toaster. Why? Because it has no agency. It has no ability to make choices. I program it. It does exactly as I program every single time. And if we were all toasters, in other words, if we were all pre-programmed machines, never deviating from God's assigned script, then I really, really don't get the point. Of the incarnation. Why does God take flesh if there's no opportunity for real relationship? This theme of God inviting humanity to choose a relationship, and therefore the implication that we truly have choice, is not just a New Testament theme, it permeates the Old Testament as well. There comes a point when Joshua turns to the Israelites and gives them a charge, a challenge, and it's one of the most powerful moments in all of the Old Testament. And he says, Now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That can't be any more clear, can it? You have a choice. The Bible says again and again and again, you have a choice. And more importantly, it is consistent in saying how you choose. Well, that matters deeply to God. To me, Scripture itself kicks the legs out from under the notion of double predestination. But wait, wait, what about God being all-knowing? Doesn't this strip that away from God? Aren't we then saying that God is now, because of this, somehow less godlike? 
As I read scripture, I hear, I see, I experience a message very clearly. God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us and has created freedom of choice so that we have the genuine ability to choose God in return. That's what I know. That's what I believe. And how God works it out within the, what seemed to me sometimes, competing attributes of God's nature, I have no idea. But I'm perfectly comfortable with leaving that, well, up to God. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, subscribing allows you to leave a review, which I would really appreciate if you do. And you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me by email, my address is dan at skypilot.zone. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.